everyone, this is Anne Doherty with Illumin Advising. I am your host of Current, a podcast with Illumin Advising. I'm excited today to introduce you to my colleague, Lee Michael. As you know, we have started interviewing our team members as a way of, uh, frankly, selfishly, giving me an opportunity to connect with them more, but also to give you the opportunity to connect with our team. Lee is a senior managing consultant at Illum and serves a number of our clients throughout the United States. She's led some incredible projects that you'll hear about today in our discussion, as well as a little bit about Lee and her interest in ceramics. I'm excited for this one. So rather than prolonging the introduction, we're going to go ahead and jump right in. So Lee, I'm really excited to have you here today. Welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Anne. I'm excited to be here too. This is one of my favorite things to do. And I say this every time I get to talk to an employee because I get the opportunity to actually like chat with you besides, you know, talking over projects or on the fly conferences. And I love that it also, you know, has the benefit of our uh, staff and our clients having the opportunity to hear more about you guys as well. So I'm really excited to chat. So one of the questions that I ask everyone when we start is uh, to ask you to introduce yourself. So if you had to give your biography in two to three sentences, what would you say about yourself? Gosh, two to three sentences. Um, I grew up on the East Coast in New Jersey in an impossibly cute town called Tranquility on 123 Creek Road, oh. which I just think is too delightful to handle. That's very um, charming. Yep. It defied, I think, all of the, you know, negative rep that New Jersey can sometimes get. And then I headed up to school in Maine and really loved being in the northeasternmost reaches of the country. So then after I graduated, I figured I had to try out the northwesternmost reaches of the country, which brought me to Seattle. And I've been here for 10 happy years and live with my husband and our extremely cute dog, Olivia. Oh, I love it. Does Olivia have a nickname? She goes by anything else? So many. Um, let's see. She started as Olivia, then went to live, then went to Tolly, and then improbably now is T, like the letter T. That's what I call her. So, okay. How did she get <laughs> Tolly from Olivia? You know, I started calling her Ollie, and then I was like, there's an awful lot of Ollies, uh, dogs named Ollie in the world. So then I think sure. Tolly just kind of hit, and then we threw off all the letters except for T. Nice. <laughs> I love it. I love the origins of nicknames because they always are, end up being sort of long meandering paths. I would share my daughter's nicknames, but they're really embarrassing. So I won't do that to her. Your daughter will thank you. <laughs> she will thank me for sure. So when did you get into the energy industry? When did you join this kind of weird niche industry that we all operate in? It is a weird niche. Um, I had started when I was in college, I was actually studying the um, forest industry. So I was really interested in how people relate to and feel a sense of stewardship over the natural world, which got me into thinking about, you know, resource extraction, which got me into forestry. And then I ended up working for 
an organization, a really wonderful organization called EarthGen that's doing a lot of great work with schools in Washington State around resource conservation and sustainability. And they had kind of an energy arm to what they were working on. And I just, you know, it really got me thinking about this resource that everybody uses and we kind of don't have a choice, right? Like everyone is Mm -hmm. an energy consumer and has to be an energy consumer. Yeah. And it got me really interested in that. So I was sort of circling around the resource conservation program implementation side of things. And then after grad school, I got on the evaluation arm of things, which I've been in for over five years now. Great. And so um, what would you say is your favorite part of the work that you do in terms of the the evaluation arm or other areas that you're working in? Well, I think there's kind of two pieces to it. I'd say the big picture aspect that I'm really excited and interested about is the policy response side of things. So, you know, obviously, with Justice 40 and all of the state level policies that are flowing from that, I think there's some really interesting things happening around, you know, accelerating us towards the clean energy future and doing it in an equitable way. Um, So it's been really exciting to be seeing what's going on there and helping our clients operationalize it. You know, I think on a smaller level, it's just everyone comes to the energy world for very different reasons, but I feel like everyone's Mm -hmm. really passionate about it and really proudly geeking out about their niche area. So it's also just fun. I feel like I'm learning new things and getting excited about new aspects of this, like you said, strange world that we're all in. I know it's funny trying to go out into the world and explain what we do to your average person because it's so niche and everyone just assumes we're putting like solar panels on buildings. And sometimes it's easiest to allow them to operate under that assumption than to try to explain all the many things that we do and engage in. And I think it looms kind of unique too, in that sense, and that we don't overly specialize in any one area um, compared to other firms our size. So it can be a challenge to describe it. When you're at a cocktail party or hanging out with folks who know nothing about our industry, what do you tell them you do? Well, this is a wonderful question. And actually it's ironic timing because I was hanging out with friends of friends last weekend and, you know, inevitably this question came up of what do you do? Mm-hmm. And I realized I don't have my elevator pitch nailed. You know, it's hard. Like you said, yeah. I feel like we are kind of proudly generalists and do a lot of different things, but, um, you know, I was kind of explaining, okay, we provide research and evaluation services to energy utilities or state agencies to help them, you know, further their clean energy or energy efficiency goals. And like, you know, this can encompass a lot of different things. And I have to say it got to They were like, oh, cool. So you like help with solar projects and stuff like that. And, you know, (laughs) yes, there's some element of our services that provide some advisory support, I suppose, around sometimes clean energy projects like that. But it just was funny that I think still in the world beyond our energy sphere, it still kind of is a black box. Like people really think of energy as like, I turn the lights on, I pay my bill and that's it. And don't really think about the larger context of what it is and what it means. Yeah. Or where it even comes from or (laughs) how it impacts other things in the world. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, exactly. We were, um, we just had that conversation with Bahari in our, one of our last employee podcasts, but I remember the first time I had that experience. I was at college undergraduate and I left my lights on and a kid who was a friend of mine who grew up in West Virginia came behind me and turned them off right away and said, 
you know, my community is being ravaged because you people are leaving your lights on. Like he came from a coal mining community, so he knew exactly where it came from. And I came from, you know, the industrial Midwest and had never really thought about it. Which I think is a very common experience. And, you know, I even think in, you know, like I said, I live in Seattle and we have increasingly been having a lot more variable temperatures in mm-hmm. Seattle and houses are, have not, most houses have not been constructed to kind of deal with the colder colds and the hotter hots. And you know, I was just having this conversation with some of my friends about how much our, our energy bills are increasing during the winters and then during the summers, you know, to kind of keep up with that in these poorly insulated homes. And even just talking to folks about not understanding why their energy is costing more, how that might relate to, you know, both like the built environment, but also things beyond the built environment. And yeah, I think there's still like a lot of lack of understanding. It's really interesting. And I always wonder, or I often ask myself, does the public need to understand to take action or do we just need them to do the thing that we need them to do, which is, you know, you name it. And I think I think the answer is no, we don't necessarily need the public to understand. I mean, if they're curious, then that's great. But I think this is something that we encounter a lot in the work that we do and why a lot of energy efficiency programs or, you know, interventions related to energy are not as successful as our clients might hope they would be because there's this expectation that people will care or that this will be one of their top priorities or that they will have an interest to learn more, do more. And, you know, a lot of people are trying to pay their bills and keep their kids in school and do the million other things that are on their plate. And it's okay that this is not most people's top priority. Yeah. And that's where, you know, to, to your interest policy can play a really important role in kind of shaping our industry without necessarily requiring the public to take behavioral changes or to care or to necessarily opt in. Yeah. It takes the onus off of the, you know, average member of the community or individual. And instead, in theory, you know, good policy makes it easier for people to operate in their own world and for, you know, public services and needs to work well for everybody in a community, not just the, you know, small handful of people who care or do have a vested interest or curiosity. So that is why I like the policy side. Yeah. So thinking about our industry, you know, we always are faced with a number of things that are working and things that aren't working. And I, and for those of us who are constantly collecting information about people and, you know, the efficacy of policy, the efficacy of programs, it can get a bit frustrating when we feel like things aren't changing, particularly when, you know, catastrophic forecasts, for example, are being dropped on us every couple of years, not to mention any big reports recently, uh, but casual. Uh, just <laughs> casual. <laughs> but when you think about the industry, what, what do you hate or wish we would get right already? What's the thing that you wish we could figure out? You know, I talked about this, gosh, I guess it was almost a month ago now, which feels crazy at ASP. But I think that our industry still has a lot of work to do around authentically and meaningfully engaging members of the community in designing, I guess you could say programs, but really more broadly, like solutions around energy use and energy services. And it's hard. I mean, it's that was the whole purpose really of the talk that I gave is that it's it's a hard, time-consuming 
expensive, messy process to meaningfully engage members of the community, you know, and understanding what their actual needs are and what their barriers to accessing energy services might be. But I also feel like I'm still always looking out for folks who really are doing that and trying that and succeeding. And I I feel like I'd love to see more organizations and more entities that are really, you know, down to embrace that messy process and try to rethink how we're engaging with the community. And for those who are listening who maybe weren't at ASP, uh, Lee gave a really great talk on um, community engagement and best practices. And I think that's available on AESP's website now, um, but certainly I could reach out to you for more information on that. Yeah. But if you had to like, um, or maybe I'll reframe it this way. If you could bend the ear of a major decision maker uh, who say has uh, control over how programs are designed and processes are developed, what piece of advice would you give them in terms of engaging with community more meaningfully? I think my first piece of advice would be rethink the timeline or the amount of time that this is going to take. Because I think that really meaningfully engaging stakeholders who can, you know, either directly speak to or, you know, can reflect the needs of communities that have been traditionally underserved by our industry, you know, it's all about relationships and forming authentic, trusting relationships. And that's something that takes time. And I don't think you can manufacture those kinds of relationships overnight. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a quote unquote, simple first step. But I think the magic solution is just really embracing being patient and putting in time to demonstrate that this invisible decision maker that we have in this scenario is is worthy of this person's time and their opinions and their input and you know that they'll they'll do good with it and that's yeah. something that's going to take a while you know you have also had a front row seat to processes like this right where states or different regional actors are trying to do this better to do better by this do you have good examples from your work say either in new york or other regions that sort of illustrate what it takes to do this well? Yeah. I mean, I think that New York State is a really great example. And uh, for those who might not be familiar, um, New York has, in response to the Climate Act, first sought to define or characterize disadvantaged communities within the state and then, you know, do good on this policy that 40% of all energy clean energy and energy efficiency investments will go towards disadvantaged communities. And, you know, my other colleagues have done a lot of more work than than I have with New York State on defining disadvantaged communities. But I think they have really modeled how this process works by, you know, coalescing the Climate Justice Working Group, which is comprised of stakeholders that represent a range of different interests in the state, making it a really transparent decision-making process, welcoming and you know, really inputting public comment and public input. You know, I think anyone who's done that work would say that it's been sometimes messy, sometimes longer than expected process, but that it really does reflect the folks who live in New York state, which is, you know, an incredibly diverse state, both in terms of, you know, New York city versus upstate and um, a range of other demographic characteristics. So. So kind of along those lines, though, I'm not trying to lead you in this direction. (laughs) (laughs) What uh, accomplishments would you say in your career you're most proud of? What's the thing that you um, that you feel most proud of or that makes you feel uh, excited to show up to work every day? 
I am really excited and proud about the the work that I've done with Illum on the, you know, I call it kind of policy response side of things or operationalizing these policies. Um, so, you know, we've been doing work, like I just mentioned, with New York State. We're also working with Connecticut. We've worked with utilities in Illinois and in Washington State. You know, it's just really gratifying to be able to be part of a process to take these policies, which honestly can often be pretty fuzzy and unclear and work with decision makers, you know, within within the folks that we work for to figure out ways to make these into something that is a practical roadmap forward. So yeah, it's been a really interesting process. Every process is a little bit different. It can be messy sometimes, and that's kind of the exciting, energizing part of it. And you've worked in so many diverse regions. I mean, so many different parts of the United States in that sense. Are there any things that you feel like really stand out as being unique to the regions that you are engaging with? Hmm. That's a good question. You know, I think that within, if I'm thinking about Northwest, Midwest, and Northeast as kind of the three pockets that we've focused on, you know, there are different in general political climates that you're operating in. There's different attitudes around, attitudes amongst the public around energy efficiency and around clean energy. You know, there's always those nuances that are really specific to the communities that you're operating in. But, you know, I think that on a kind of broader scale, though, the commonality among all of them is that there are a lot of communities that have traditionally been left behind or really harmed by our industry in the past. And, you know, the way that those harms play out can be different, but, you know, it's typically black and brown folks who have experienced disproportionate harms, you know, and there's a lot of, there's kind of a common thread around the damage that has happened in our industry in the past. And I think that's one really important through line across all of this work that even though, Every community is nuanced. There's really got to be this understanding and reckoning about kind of what the dark side is and how we want to remedy that. Yeah. So I kind of flipped your question on its head and said, here's all the similar things, but. <laughs> That's all right. You're completely allowed. I um, I want to kind of dig into the dark side a little bit more, not necessarily to dwell there, but to discuss kind of what the industry is attempting to do and where you've seen that work really pushed towards reparative investments and where you feel like maybe we're falling a little short of doing that well? Yeah, well, I think, you know, a great starting point on something I'm excited about is what we're seeing at the federal level through Justice 40. So, you know, there's this imperative to rethink how we're creating and and then implementing energy programs to benefit disadvantaged communities. And this is also, you know, them flowing down from the state level. But when all of this is new, there's not really a roadmap, I think, for states to, there's no consistent way that every state is planning to adopt this or do it themselves. And so I think there are the New York states, for example, who are really forging ahead and I think are willing to try things out and understand that they might not get it all right the first First time around, but that they're going to try. And, you know, then there are other states who I think are inevitably going to fall behind because there isn't a clear roadmap or a clear path forward. So I think the exciting part is just seeing this imperative flowing down at the federal level. I think where it's getting hard is that it feels like there's no consistent path that's going to like uniformly flow state to state. 
Yeah, it's interesting because in some ways, the individual policymaking of each state has largely protected our industry as the federal government has engaged or not engaged in the project of climate change mitigation and investment in energy programs. So for example, in certain federal administrations where investments were dialed back, the states like New York and others, Wisconsin, California, all of these many, many states actually really continued to charge forward and understood that local investment was important. And then at the same time, the lack of consistency at the federal level does make it more difficult for states to then align behind those policies and act in accordance with them. Arizona, for example, for a long time, didn't have a state energy office. Hmm. So when these, you know, different programs and initiatives were moving forward, the first question I had was, well, how? And how will cities and communities like uh, Tucson, where I live, mobilize to access these dollars and even know um, or have the technical resources or capabilities to to seek them out in the first place, but then be able to implement against the ideals of, say, Justice 40, for example. So it's really kind of a fascinating moment. And I guess the plus side, if I'm bright-siding it, is that we are going to see many models emerge that will perhaps serve as their own natural experiment as to how to do it best. I I think you're right, Anne. And I feel like it's okay if there are stumbles along the way. Like this is all new. And I think inevitably there are going to be in this grand experiment, there are going to be things that work really well that, you know, are going to be key lessons learned. And there are going to be things that don't work well. And those are lessons learned too. The one other thing I wanted to acknowledge as you were saying it is, you know, we were talking about how some states are, you know, really forging ahead, whether or not there is a federal imperative and some are not. Um, I thought you brought up a great point that, you know, there's this whole level of government under the state level at the municipal and local level. And I think one pretty common thread around most local governments is that they're just often budget and almost always resource strapped. So I I do think that there will be some really interesting things, or I'm I'm feeling optimistic that as states do get in line, they may learn best practices that then can hopefully ease the burden on local governments in having to figure this out themselves. We are, I'm actually hoping to grab uh, some local folks here in Tucson because they went about their climate policy planning completely differently by engaging rather than regional authorities first. So economic development corporations, say smaller local government entities, let's say, such as like ward members, et cetera, mm-hmm. and went straight to communities and started engaging with the communities before even bringing solutions or planning to the typical power holders, which I thought was a really interesting move and a bold move for our mayor and their team. So you yeah. never know. We'll see. It's a pretty imaginative time. And I think it will be really neat to see the creative solutions that, you know, different entities are embracing that do kind of turn maybe the normal order of operations on its head a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, and I think what's cool about that and this, if we're truly able to embrace those differences and approach that we will ideally unearth things that matter more to communities than we're even considering or thinking about, because we tend to think always that we know best mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, you know, in running programs and solutions. And I say that the royal we, 
right? But um, but often communities have their own ideas of, of, and should have their own ideas about uh, where they want their futures to go and what they want that to look like. And um, it's often more imaginative and more creative or alternatively more straightforward and looking, you know, looking for more direct benefits as, you know, at ASP, we had a really great panel and the plenary where we were talking about this. And one of the quotes that came forward from Andronika Morris was something to the effect, and this isn't hers, so we're not quite sure who we get to credit this quote with, but it's a good one, which is that, you know, policymakers and planners are more oriented towards funding the dreams and aspirations of white folks than funding and the basic needs of black and brown folks. And I thought that was a really interesting and important framing in the sense that, you know, we can get so fixated on uh, new solutions, new technologies, um, pie in the sky ideas. You know, I was thinking about um, kind of adjacently the sort of irony that we have these really advanced like AI technologies um, developing right now. And still, I think a report dropped recently that 26% of the world's population still doesn't have access to clean water. And you see that in the United States. You know, I grew up in Michigan and Flint, Michigan still does not have access to clean water. And there are many regions um, like that still in the US. And uh, it just kind of goes to show how we tend to focus on things that we think are important to our future, but neglect the basic needs of communities that we're ultimately hoping to serve. I mean, Anne, I think that's such a great point. And it brings to mind, um, you know, we've done a couple of what we call barriers and opportunities studies with clients in the past year, most recently with ComEd. And if folks are interested, they actually can read that report. It's published online on our website. But the purpose of those studies is, you know, to understand broadly the barriers that customers face towards accessing energy services. And I think some of the really interesting things that come out of those studies is the the key barriers have nothing to do with energy and they are not, you know, directly related to energy. They're related to one example is many customers lack access to banking or can't get a set up a bank account or, you know, get a debit card. And, you know, it's these things that maybe we don't think of as the tangible connection to energy, but that really influences how they relate to energy services or how they use energy. And I hope that I'm seeing a lot more of our of our clients and our peers thinking maybe more holistically about how energy fits into people's lived experiences. And I'm hopeful that that kind of more holistic approach or wraparound approach will continue to grow. Yeah. I mean, how in the world can you participate in a program when you're not even able to participate in this in standard financial markets right? or systems, right? I mean, there's, there's so much to unpack there. So taking a bit of a turn, I kind of have two questions that I love asking and they're kind of related. So I'll I will um, maybe pose them together. If um, you could leave this industry and do something completely different, if you were to say, you know, forget it, I've learned everything I've learned. I'm not interested in pursuing these, you know, kooky topics any longer and wanted to go do something else, what would you do? I would want to be a ceramicist or a potter. (laughs) (laughs) So tell us more about that. I love pottery. I think it's a really just, you know, the thing that I really love about the work that we do is it's brain heavy, right? Like I'm tired at the end of each workday because I've just been thinking and wrestling with these topics all day, which is awesome. And 
both energizing and exhausting. And there's something really fun about not turning your brain off, but just thinking in a different way and getting to be creative in a different way. And pottery allows me to do that. So yeah, I don't know if anyone would buy my stuff, but that's definitely what I'd want to do. <laughs> okay. So w- what stage in ceramics are you in? Are you coil building, slab building? I'm, you know the lingo, and we'll have to talk more about this. Um, <laughs> I'm slab building and hand building. I'm not a huge fan of the wheel, though I'm competent at it. I can kind of get okay. by, but yeah, I really like doing weird sculptural pieces that are not terribly functional, but kind of make you cock your head and wonder what in the world you're looking at. I was going to ask you that next. So are you dealing with functional pieces, abstract art, figurative art? I would say definitely abstract. I have, I'm in this stage of creating blobs. So they're literal. I'll send you some pictures after this. They're just these like big, strange blobby forms. I have been kind of poking a hole in all of them so that you could throw a little like, you know, flower stem or something in there if you want to. So I'm sort of flirting with the idea of making them functional, but they're not actually functional pieces. They're entirely meant to be sort of gawked at. (laughs) Nice. And so one of the things that I've, okay, this is a random question that I'm sure everyone listening is really curious about too. (laughs) When you are building blobs, you also have to make the blobs hollow, right? Mm -hmm. Like you can't just like like pull together a bunch of clay, throw it in a kiln. So how do you create and retain the structure of something that's like blob-like? Without, you know, it collapsing on you when it needs to get fired. It is a, an iterative and kind of time consuming process. So you're totally right. If folks don't know this, you can't just create like a massive chunk of clay and form it into something. It will completely explode in the kiln and ruin everyone else's stuff. Um, So what you have to do is instead create these kind of thin forms and then layer them on top of each other to create something that's hollow and really kind of like lightweight. And so I usually do them, I'm kind of looking off to the corner because I I have some pieces that are drying on the windowsill over there, but it usually is like a, you know, five or six day process where I put some on, I let them harden enough that they can kind of hold their form. I usually keep them up on like a wacky combination of stilts and stuffed newspapers and all that good stuff. And then honestly, once they go in the kiln, you roll the dice and see if it all sticks together or if it breaks and falls apart. And that's kind of the funnest part. You roll, you completely roll the dice. (laughs) I feel like that's a really good metaphor for professional services or, you know, or, you uh, you know, you try your best. (laughs) Yep. And and actually anything really where you're trying to impact change. It's very true. You never really know once you put it in the fire, what's going to happen. And I think to tie it back to what we were talking about earlier, that is what is such a, once you're at peace with it, cool aspect of the kind of policy side of the work that we're doing is this is all new. So it's not like folks are going to get it entirely right the first time. It's coming in with best intent. It's doing your best. It's doing due diligence and also being willing to change or be flexible if things aren't working out. Yeah. And everyone's building something together. Totally. Which is a cool thing that we often don't have the opportunity to do in our lives, right? Yeah. 
That's really interesting. So um, if you, you could not be a ceramicist um, and you were to say, well, you are a ceramicist, let's say you are, so you can own that. That's also true for you. What is on your professional bucket list, say within this industry? What's the thing that you would love to tackle? Great question. You know, I think that there is a lot of really cool stuff happening um, around the intersection of energy and social justice and economic mobility. So I was thinking recently about, I guess, midway through last year, uh, the Urban Energy Justice Lab, which is out of the University of Michigan, released this energy equity project framework, which basically, you know, reimagines how we think about designing programs to impact those who have either been, you know, underserved or harmed by the energy industry in the past. And so I'd love for to be a part of more projects that really embed that equity framework into, you know, kind of the normal operations of what they do. I think there's also going to be some really cool stuff happening around energy sovereignty in the next Mm. few years. And I think it'll be really interesting to see how the work that say Illum does can support those efforts and what's happening there. And then, yeah, I mean, I think as we were talking about earlier, I'm really curious to see how states respond to federal policies that have been set forth like Justice 40 and, you know, choose their path forward and how that flows down to local governments or the municipal level and supporting our clients there. So all fun, new, exciting things that feel like it's a little bit of new territory. No, that's awesome. And it's, it's nice to uh, be in a position to, to work on things that do feel like we're moving forward, but also in towards more positive and, and holistic engagement, you know, yeah. and, and life affirming things, right. Energy sovereignty, like being one of those. Exactly. So, so my last question for you is, though we can keep talking, so we don't have to stop <laughs> and, until Goldie or someone listening stops us from talking. What keeps you whole? What keeps you happy? You know, I love, I love getting outside for anyone. Have you, you've been to Washington, right, Anne? Yeah. Uh-huh. It's beautiful. I mean, yeah. Washington state is just magical. And I feel constantly astonished at how amazing it is to live in a place like this. So, I mean, when I'm not working, I just love getting outside. I go backpacking and hiking and I'm a not great, but increasingly competent skier and enjoy doing that. You know, I really like reading. I really like, I think this is in my Illum bio, but I love cooking, but I never use a recipe because it just stresses me out. I think to have like another thing that I have to pay attention to and follow the steps. So I like having kind of manic harebrained experiments in the kitchen. Yeah. And I also, I mean, this sounds, it is not me just dropping a line, but I feel really happy to work at a job where I'm super excited to start each day. And I feel intellectually stimulated and curious and like I am fully bought into what we're doing and why we're doing it. So that also fills my happiness bucket. Oh, that makes me happy to hear. And even if it is a line, I'll totally take it. Yeah. We love a line, but it's real. (laughs) No, that's awesome. So before we drop, I want to hear more about your latest skiing experience. So we always, for those of you listening, have the benefit of hearing about Lee's adventures on our Slack channel and seeing photographs. And recently you posted a photograph of yourself um, skiing. Is it route? Do we use the word route? Yeah, we can use route. Yeah. Trail. What is it? What do we, what's the formal route or run? We could say run, run. 
Yes, it's run. It's run. So if you, um, you recently sort of reclaimed a run for yourself. So you tell us a little bit about that. I did. So gosh, it was like March, 2020. So truly the week before lockdown hit everywhere in the world, certainly in the U S um, <laughs> I was up at Whistler, which is up in British Columbia with my husband and a bunch of our friends and we were skiing and it was like a really easy, mellow run. And I just had a freak accident that ended with me dislocating my shoulder and breaking my leg in three places and having to get taken down by ski patrol, which was like both painful and really humiliating to be like on the back of this sled for, you know, we were also at the very, very top of the mountain. So it was like a 40 minute ride down behind the skier. Yeah. On the sled, you know, with my laughing gas. And then because we were in Canada, you know, my, my husband had to drive me down to Seattle to get surgery that night. And it's like a six hour drive. And so he drives through the night, we get down to the hospital. I thank goodness was able to get my surgery because then as we know, surgeries got really, any kind of medical care got really clogged up about three days later. But I remember being at the, in the hospital and then referencing, they were like, just don't go to the seventh floor. And we were like, what is the seventh floor? And it turns out that the seventh floor is where they were housing COVID patients. Cause at the time they're really keeping quiet about the spread of COVID. And so it was just this strange, like convergence of this global pandemic and me kind of out of it with this broken leg and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, now we're three years later. I went back to Whistler last weekend. We went down the run. No broken bones happened. And we can officially put that experience behind us. Nice. I think it's great that you went back and did it. I feel like it says a lot about you that you went back on the run. Even if you said it was a gentle run, it's still like the run, right? That you'll never forget. It really had a, a mythical quality for a while. So I'm glad that now we can just make it, you know, just another run. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to connect. I'm sure everybody's listening. will have fun listening to you as well and getting to know you a little bit more. And, you you know, obviously if folks have questions for you, you can always reach out and I'm just excited to talk more. So, and I do want to talk more about pottery when you get a chance. I will talk your ear off about it. So you've opened Pandora's box. Perfect. I love it. I'm always here for conversations that last a very long time about a single topic. Good. Amazing. I'm here for it. <laughs> thanks, okay. Yeah, thanks, Lee. Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed getting to know Lee. This podcast was brought to you by Illum's production team. Our music is by Blue Dot Sessions. We look forward to talking to you next time.